Not to say that genes don't matter. You absolutely must choose your parents correctly to be a world record holder, he says, rhetorically. But Jamaica has thousands and thousands sprinting, and you get the best coming through. That's what accounts for this phenomenon. If you had this in any other country, you would see exactly the same thing. When a Scottish publication solicited Pitsilatus's advice for aspiring United Kingdom athletes, he responded, Go into sprinting. Don't worry because you're white. It's got nothing to do with the color of your skin. His friend and colleague Errol Morrison would heartily disagree. Welcome to the Sports Literati Podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, David Shu. And I'm your other co-host, David Bryant. Welcome aboard. For another episode of the Sports Literati, and this is a much, be- much belated episode. That's right. I'm, I'm back, baby. I'm back. <laughs> yes, he's he's dealing with fatherhood, the sequel, but he has time, made time to read this book, and we're here to talk about the sports gene here on the Sports Literati podcast, where we get into the DNA of sports books i like I, I love that entry it was it was just too easy that was too easy you didn't have to like be that creative when coming up with that intro you gave me like four months to think about the thing <laughs> <laughs> well job well done dave all right so we're here talking about the sports gene now this is a book written by david epstein and it's a book that's gotten quite a bit of buzz over the last couple of years he's written on, he's actually written two books there was a more recent book called range and it talked about the idea that it's better to have a diversity of experiences and ideas rather than single-mindedly focusing on something. But a lot of the ideas from that book actually seem to originate in this book, his original you know, first publication that kind of made it big and became a bestseller. This book basically, for people who haven't read it, talks about the science of elite sports, right? It gets into the science and the biology of what makes people good at certain sports. It examines various examples of, you know, places where genetics seem to play a huge role in the outcome of sporting events in a way that not too many other sports books do, right? And specifically, he uses science and genetics to try to answer some questions that a lot of us maybe cross our mind over time as sports fans such as why are Kenyans especially good at long-distance running? Why are Jamaicans really good at sprinting? What's the difference between a Major League Baseball player and a regular Joe? What are the chances that you and I have of becoming an NBA player based solely on our height, right? And, you know, these questions sound interesting when posed this way. He then goes and finds, like, some world-renowned expert or PhD or researcher who's spending a great deal of time addressing this issue, Almost to a degree that is almost shocking to me that people devote this much energy to answering these kind of questions when we're living in a world that the polar ice caps are melting, animals are going extinct every five seconds. But apparently it's important for us to understand how mitochondria work in like elite athletes' calf muscles or something. (laughs) Anyways, that's the book. We've read it. And, you know, that's my synopsis. But I'm going to tell you, this book was a slog for me. And one of the problems was is that Dave suddenly said, I, I'm, we're having a baby and we need to take a break from the podcast. I said, no worries. And at that point, I had read about 
three, two thirds of the book. And I was, I, I really did, was not enjoying it. I said, I'll take a break. Three months later, he comes back to me. He's like, oh, we're getting ready to do this. And I, I looked back at the book and I could not remember a thing that I had read. <laughs> I had to reread half the thing this week <laughs> for this. And I think that's the problem with the book for me is that it wasn't memorable enough. Like I couldn't really remember why the Kenyans were good anymore. Why were the Jamaicans good? Like, like uh, the stuff just kind of went in one year and went out the other. And I, I feel like I'm a pretty good reader. I'm not a guy who like glosses over stuff. And I know I'm reading for the podcast. I'm trying to capture ideas that are meaningful to me and like, you know, see where this thing goes. And I just couldn't retain it. Right. And, and that, that I think that's ultimately the thing that drove me nuts about this book. There are parts of it that I enjoyed and we'll get into that. But that was my overall feeling of it. It was a real struggle for me to, to wrap my head around the science and appreciate it and then think of it like thematically as we went through. Do, do you think it's because it's, it's too methodical for you in that sense? Like there's no clear like, you know, aggressor. There's no clear protagonist, antagonist. Do you need a, a story where there's a villain and a good guy? Is, is, could that <laughs> maybe why you, you, you didn't remember much of it? I, I think it's that the story kind of runs out after a while. Like there are some, I, I, when I read sports books, when I read any books, the, if the storytelling is good, it'll keep me going, right? And, and I think this happened a little bit when we read Soccernomics a few months ago or a, a year ago. This book suffers from the same problem. There are some tidbits in this book that I found to be really entertaining and I learned something. But on a whole, it started to get too long, right? It was too long, too much science, and I just had trouble you know, digesting the thing. It's too, it's too clinical for you, it, it sounds like. And uh, when it comes down to it, genes are just pretty much neutral. They're not good. They're not bad. They're not evil. <laughs> they're, not, they're not superheroes. They're just, they're just, they just are, basically. And um, I, I'm not totally on the same boat with you. I'm not totally on board with how you feel about it. I thought... I look at it more as like it was a series of interesting anecdotes um, mm -hmm. and a lot of it, I f a lot of the information that I read, I feel like I've read before, like on Wikipedia pages, just because I'm sort of interested in, in these kind of topics, but it was interesting to see it collated and aggregated here, you, you know, in, in written form like that, that to me was interesting the way it was put together. Like, I knew that Jamaicans dominated sprinting. I sort of knew why. I knew that Kenyans dominate long-distance running. I sort of knew why. But it was interesting to see it put together in a way that it, it flowed. It flowed reasonably well. Can you explain to us right now, in like 10 sentences, why Jamaicans are good at sprinting? Like, I can't do it still. I read the book again. I still can't do it. Uh, it, it's, it's to do with the density of fast twitch, uh, fibers, fibers in their muscles, basically, um, their West African descent, recent West African descent, um, the, the length of their legs and the width of their pelvis or the lack of width of their pelvis. Wow. This, this is remarkable, man, that you can retain that because, <laughs> because the problem, the problem I had reading this, I feel like it, it might have to do with, you know, my background, you know, our background is, you know, going to medical school and dental school. Like when I start reading passages about 
these genetic terms and these scientific studies, my eyes just glaze over and it's just in one ear out the other. <laughs> you, you would think, you would think it would be the opposite. Based on your background, this should be easy information for you to, no, no. you know, absorb. My true background, my true background as a sports literature guy, this does not hold water, right? I cannot handle this kind of writing. Yeah, well, it, it, this book actually was very timely for me because uh, at my young, my new son's two-month appointment, the doctor told us that his height was actually off the charts, like 99.9th percentile off the charts and, oh, and it just made me wow. it kind of made me freak out because i'm i was wondering like where like i'm not that tall my wife i guess is on the taller side but she's not like that tall like how how did he how how's he <laughs> off the charts like this and do we more importantly do we have an nba player on our hands in the future that's what i'm wondering he doesn't look <laughs> like much now he is like yay big but you know, if we extrapolate this over like 20 years, maybe maybe he'll get to that, you know, six foot eight to seven foot range that he needs to get into. Maybe, maybe. Now, that is one of the parts of the book that I enjoyed. There was an NBA chapter that talks about the height thing. Let's talk a little bit about the air, the sections we enjoyed because I'm, I'm being a little bit harsh on it. I did not hate the whole book. There were some parts that I liked. And one of them is this NBA thing. It's not a huge revelation, okay? Basically, the book says... If you're tall enough, your chances of becoming a pro basketball player increase, right? To the degree that if you're seven feet tall, like if your son makes it to seven feet tall, he has almost like a 15 to 20 percent chance of being in the NBA, yeah. period. We don't take any other factors in his life into consideration. Yeah, the stats are for every uh, six six-footers or every six seven-footer, seven-foot American men, one of them is in the NBA right now right this moment, correct, correct. which is actually correct. A, a, just a shocking revelation. And <laughs> is it, is it, did you, did you not see Greg Ostertag and Eric Montrose have million dollar careers in the NBA? Is it really that it, okay, shocking? It's not that shocking to me because I've always had this underlying feeling that I don't actually respect the athleticism of, of a lot of the NBA players, basically. Like I don't respect them as athletes. <laughs> like if you're a seven footer, how many people do you have to outcompete to get to the NBA? It turns out not not very many, right? Like if you're above the eight, above the height of like six foot six, six foot seven, like these people don't exist. You can go a full year without seeing somebody that tall. Like just when you walk around, a full year. I I don't think I don't think I've ever met a seven footer in real life. Or I'm I'm just talking even like six foot seven, six foot eight, even, right? Mm. It it just right. It, I don't respect. This is gonna sound controversial, but. I don't respect the majority of NBA players as athletes. I, I mean, I think they're good at what they do. <laughs> if I see a six foot one NBA player, I think that guy's like he literally is one in a million. Like that that guy no, is I an extreme athlete. He he is skilled at his craft. But all 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 I hear from the NBA media is like, oh, these guys are the you know experts at their craft. You know, there's only like whatever at any one point three hundred or whatever four hundred NBA players at once. You got to respect these guys, dude. If you're six foot ten or seven feet, as Jalen Rose says, if you're seven feet and can walk and chew gum at the same time, you have a chance to be in the NBA. Like, how's that even respectable? <laughs> well, that's what the book is saying. I, I agree with you. When you get to a certain height, for sure, at seven feet, six eleven, there's a lot of stiffs. Like, I mean, we've all watched basketball for decades. Like, you know, when you watch Michael Jordan in The Last Dance, 
the, the fact that they kind of glossed over about how difficult it was to win this championship is Greg Ostertag was the starting center of the Utah Jazz, right? And Luke Longley was the center for the Bulls. Like, th- these are just, like, regular, random, tall dudes stuck on those teams, yeah. right? And that is actually some proof that the league is better now than it was back in those days because those guys would not be, you know, frontline centermen in the NBA today. But, but we digress. But we digress. What we're talking about here is height. My problem with this chapter of the book is, although this is an entertaining chapter because I love basketball and they're giving me some little factoids about you know how important height is, we all knew this already, right? There's nothing really that revelatory I, about it. We knew that already, but we didn't know to what extent. Like, mm. we, we didn't know how rare these people were, but now we do. You know, based on what they were telling us, we, we do know how rare they are. So mm-hmm. <clears throat> that's you know that that decreases my respect level for for them as athletes <laughs> i i will argue with you though however you cannot say the same thing about people who are six eight six seven six six because those people who are elite players at that size they generally are very skilled right and they're but big, how many right? people do you have to out compete to 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 get to the nba at six foot eight six foot nine <laughs> not true. not the it's same true. as I, other sports probably not the same as other professions probably right if you're six foot one you you have to be like compare compare the average six foot two player to the average six foot eight player compare their skills and what they're good at there's no question that the six foot two player has a far greater array of skills and range than that six foot eight players almost unquestionably almost unquestionably with Mm -hmm. no exceptions right that six foot two player has to be just a master master craftsman like i'm not even talking about the players even shorter than him those guys have to be just they're they're just unicorns basically right um (laughs) there's just such a like unfortunately basketball is one of those sports where height is like rewarded in the extreme basically if you're not of a certain height you basically have no chance of of making it that far it's true it's true and it gets to a bigger question that this book poses which is when everything ultimately gets determined by genetics i think the book really goes pretty deep in pushing this angle is that genetics can explain a lot of this stuff right like why are kenyans good why are jamaicans good why is a guy in the mlb is explained in large part due to genetics and then a bit also due to work ethic and training, blah, blah, blah. But it's so genetic heavy that it kind of removes the mystique of the sport, right? It removes the mystique of the athlete, right? And it turns it into this thing where it's like the basketball example is if you're tall enough, you can make it. The baseball example it gives is that if your eyesight is really good, you're going to make it, right? They can pick out the best baseball player from a laundry list of prospects by figuring out who has better than 20-20 vision, right? And that's all it is, right? That, this is, it, it makes it, it just, maybe it's true. You know, it could be completely true, but it really just makes it harder to watch the game and, and appreciate the storyline. I'm going to push back a bit because I have better than 2020 vision and there's, <laughs> or I used to have better than 20. Actually, I might still have better than 2020 vision and there's no way I can cut it in, in baseball. Uh, my my <laughs> fastball is about 50 miles per hour and my ability, my, my ability to hit a ball is very limited at best. Did you train? Did you? Train? But I didn't put in ten thousand hours. 
if you're asking. <laughs> that is not what this book is telling you to do. This book actually also <laughs> argues about the 10,000 hours. We'll I, I don't, you know what? I don't know that that's what it's arguing. I think it almost feels like this book was a response to that sort of very popular 10,000 hour rule, which uh, was popularized in the Malcolm Gladwell book, Outliers, uh, mm-hmm. which were, I, I think they, the study was based on violin violinists actually and what Mm -hmm. they found was that the people who had put in you know roughly 10,000 hours those were the people who made it to the highest levels and the people who didn't make it to those highest levels didn't put in they put in less well um and and it's a little bit too neat and tidy right it's a catchy thing to say it's a catchy number but it doesn't capture all that it needs to capture right well it's it's a little misunderstood it the way you framed it is the way most people think of the 10,000-hour rule. But in the original book, what happened was they took a bunch of accomplished like concert violinists and asked them how much they trained in retrospect. And on average, those guys trained about 10,000 hours. Some of them were much less. Some of them were over. right? So then he took the 10,000 and said, well, that seems to be that maybe Bill Gates spent 10,000 hours computer programming and then became good at computers. Or you know, a golfer spent 10,000 hours and got good at that. So... You know, it gives you a barometer roughly of how much work it takes to become really good at something. But it's not saying that just putting in that time is going to get you there. The, the way it's talked about is uh, I feel like they, they're extrapolating way too far. This is a study on violinists. Yes. What does that have to do with, like, basketball? What does that have to do with <laughs> any sport? What does that have to do with any other profession? Like, these are very different activities i i feel like right these are not these are not these are apples and oranges comparison but it is saying that if you it's it's trying to suggest that that's a rough ballpark of how many hours you need to put in at anything to become a master at it okay so i think the point is that what they're trying to say is it takes a lot of hard work to become a master at something that's basically that's the basic idea and it but but at the same time, what it's insinuating is that there are there is no such thing as a prodigy. There's no such thing as genetic advantage. It's insinuating that. It's not saying that. Nowhere in that study does it probably say that. But that's what people have extrapolated from it. And that's how it's been presented. Right, because people didn't read the book. <laughs> yeah, there, there you go. So I, I think this is this book this is a pushback on that idea. I think that's, that's sort of the, yes. the principle behind it. There's even a chapter in the sports gene where they found a dude in the U.S. who decides to quit his job and apply the 10,000-hour rule and do concentrated, organized golf training as an adult, right? He's intending to put in this 10,000 hours so that he can make it as a professional golfer. I forget his name now, but he actually gets a few thousand hours in before he throws out his back and he cannot continue anymore. And people watched him and they're like, oh, he's decent. Like, he looks better than a regular Joe that just picked up golf you know, on weekends, but they're like, there's no way he's going to become a pro, right? And like that, throwing that story in was kind of amusing, but also doesn't really seem to fit into this book that's supposed to be about rigorous scientific understanding of stuff. I thought at some points the book starts to get a little random with the way it tries to explain things, right? It, 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 I think it would have been better off sticking to genetics and just being more textbook-y. But like this chapter here about this golf guy just did not do it for me. I, I think the, yeah, same with me. But I think the parts that I, I enjoyed a lot were the parts where they actually 
talked about these guys who were just what, what you would call naturals, right? Like Donald Thomas, mm-hmm. the high jumper for the Bahamas, or... Yes, um, my favorite. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there, there's these guys, or, or these random uh, Kenyans or, or guys from East Africa who, without very little training, end up being like NCAA champions in, in long-distance well, running. Like, that, that's incredible. The Donald Thomas example is amazing. Like, that was the only part of the book that I was like, I had to go and tell my wife about this chapter. I was like, this is a phenomenal story. So for people who don't know, Donald Thomas is a high jumper from the Bahamas. He had never really done high jumping before. He was in the middle of university bragging about how how he could dunk so easily that a high jumper that was listening in on the conversation challenged him to attempt to do a high jump, right? So he's like, sure, no problem. Having never trained, and you know how high jumpers jump, right? They have to do that fancy thing where they jump backwards, Fosbury right? flop and, or something like that. Yeah, so there's this whole technique and thing to this. This guy's never done it before. He shows up, you know, over the lunch hour at the campus track and field facility, and just for the sake of this bet, jumps beyond everyone's wildest belief, you know, basically has a world-class jump on his first try ever at high jumping, right? Within a few jumps is breaking the university record, right? Instantly, they sign him up to become you know, a member of the university team. He ends up getting a scholarship to Auburn. He ends up winning an Olympic gold medal and stuff. Like it's, it's, he, he, it's an insane story of a guy that just randomly, you know, with no training built in was able to leap incredibly. And then the book goes into a little bit about how his Achilles tendon, you know, is a lot stronger than that of the average person and stuff like that. Love that section of the book, right? If this book had lots of sections like that, it would have been a great read. Yeah. I, I mean, the anecdotes like that that's a, that was a, a very solid anecdote but some of the anecdotes just weren't that interesting like so uh, one, one story that i didn't particularly like was the story of all of the um the arctic uh dog sledders basically like <laughs> this is this is when i put the book down. I, I can't think of a less interesting sport than dog sledding if, if you think about it i mean <laughs> I mean, I could think of a few, but yeah, there are some sports I've never watched. Like they're right? talking about the athleticism of these dogs and their genetic makeup, which I don't know how transferable that is to humans. And I think one okay, I think one reason why the book feels like it lacks some substance is because genetics is such a black box. Like people, even though there's some examples here of like a very specific genes that affect very specific things it's unknown how most of them how most of it works right these are just a lot of these are just theories and it's hard to take one gene and see how it interacts with every other gene like we're talking about billions of possible genes and you know billions of possible differences and billions of possible interactions it's hard to isolate all these things right it too much is un- unknown like not enough is known for us to have very good substantive examples of how it impacts you know athletics i think there's no denying that it is a big component of athletics especially something as singular as running or jumping like these are just you know basic human activities right um there's no denying that it it impacts it in in a great way but it's hard to explain without uh, like a bit more 
evidence, right? A bit, uh, you, we, need to, we need to fast forward like 20 years into the future, maybe more, maybe 100 years in the future before we know a bit more about why things are the way they are, why, why certain people are better at certain things athletically. Doesn't the book try to sell you on the idea that, I mean, although training is important, that genetics plays like this enormous role, bigger than we've ever, you know, expected in the in producing the outcomes that we see, right? I, th I feel like that's the main thrust of the book. I, I think, you know what? I think because it's called the sports gene, that's that's what I expected. But to me, if if I was to do like a too long didn't read synopsis of the book, it would be genetics, environment, both play a part in athletic <laughs> prowess, which we already knew that, right? But that's, that's, that's already obvious. And this is just showing us anecdotes and examples of that. But I don't think it's trying to tell us anything, you know, it's not telling us anything we don't already know. Speaking about the dog sledding chapter, the one thing that I took away from that chapter was that the dogs are not just bred for physical characteristics, right? Like stamina and whatever. The dogs are actually bred for like their personality. Some something genetic about some of these dogs makes them work harder, makes them more enthusiastic to work harder than other dogs, right? Like as we got into that, I was like, wow, like we could really try to explain the whole world with genetics, right? Like why, why do I work hard? And the other guy doesn't work that hard. Or, or why is there someone that works three times harder than me? I thought it was just I was being lazy, but actually I was just pre-programmed this way, right? As the book kind of laid that out, I, it, it's trying to rewrite our understanding of human behavior in a way that, I don't know, I, I, it didn't sit well with me. It, I feel like every, according to this book, everything's almost preordained. Why do we even need to play sports, right? Why do we even need to see people run a race? The result is already programmed. We don't understand the black box and how it works, but you know what? The genetics said that Bobby Knight was going to be an ass to his players. <laughs> the genetics says that, you know, Kevin Durant is an amazing basketball player. Like, what, what do we need to see them perform for? I think you're pushing this a little bit far. I think you're taking it a little bit far. No, I'm not. Do, do I'm you, not. Like, okay. So after reading this book, does it? do you think it actually affects the way you're watching sports? Like, do you feel like it adds to it? Do you feel like it takes away from it? Or do you feel no change? It, it will not affect the way I watch sports because I'm not going to take this book too seriously. But I'll give you an example. This is the man that the book ends with. The book ends with a discussion of a cross-country skier named Eero Mantaranta. I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name properly. But this guy was like a champion, you know, Nordic skier. He had some weird medical condition that just made his body like super attuned to, to skiing faster than everybody else and have more stamina than everyone else, right? The details of what his condition were escaped. I think it was EPO. Moment. Like he had an EPO... Um like EPO mutation, which allowed him to um, take up more oxygen. It, it always, yeah. it always, too, too it always comes down to oxygen. Too sciency for the sports fan, <laughs> right? But this guy was like blowing people away on the on the ski slopes, or I mean, it's Nordic skiing, it's cross country, right? So he's blowing people away in the races. He was winning by minutes when people usually win by seconds, right? And he had a whole pile of medals. One of the most decorated athletes ever. At the end of this. This dude's theory is that this guy's victories was just because of this mutation, right? And they and, and the funny part about it is he went and asked the guys, like, you know, you, you know, like, what do you think of this mutation that you have that gave you all these victories? The guy's like, 
I don't believe that that's what won it for me. I won this because of hard work, right? And of course you would say that because your entire life, like your entire identity as a champion, you know, as an older elderly man looking back at his life, feeling fulfilled as a champion is now being challenged by this thing that says, oh, the only reason you're any good is because you're born that way, <laughs> right? And I felt the same way. Like I was thinking, if that is the case, especially in sports like cross-country skiing, then why does any of us watch any of this stuff? It seems so pointless now, right? It's just a matter of who was born with the most EPO. Well, let's just do a lab test and uh, we don't even have to run the race. <laughs> like, honestly, like why, why does we need to watch a Tour de France? Like I, I found that this book for sure affected my ability to think about these long distance, you know, endurance events that are purely, you know, genetic based. I feel like there's still some room for basketball and football because those sports are team sports. So there's this whole team dynamic and there's the socializing part and getting Kobe to share the ball. Like that stuff still interests me. But if you want to tell me about putting guys in a straight foot race or like have them run for two hours and see who goes farther, like who cares? It's all in the genes. Who cares, man? Uh, so are you suggesting that... <clears throat> Rather than run an Olympic marathon, we should just draw blood from all the competitors, and whoever has the highest uh, ox like the the highest oxygen perfusion in their lungs should be awarded <laughs> the gold medal. Is that is that what you're saying? You know what? In a nutshell, you know what? I'd be down for that. I'd be down for that. Why not? Can you imagine I, the drama? I will watch. I will watch that drama as much as I watch the actual marathon going forward. I guarantee you that. <laughs> I, I think that does a disservice to the hard work and and <laughs> effort that these athletes put into it. It's not easy to run a marathon, man. Have you ever run a marathon? Hey, hey, it's not easy to podcast, right? Guys, come and watch our podcast. It's not easy to do this. It's it's genetic, but it's still not easy to do. <laughs> I feel like nothing of my genetics, uh, you know, helps me in this in this medium personally. But the, the twenty twenty vision is helping you see me on Zoom. <laughs> But okay, so one thing that I think I will not be able to unsee now, now that I, I, I've sort of read this book, is if I'm ever watching a long distance foot race, what I'm probably going to spend a lot of time doing is looking at the, the, the lower legs of these athletes when they're running and see who has very thin legs. Because according to this book, the, uh, so a lot of these, these, Kenyans uh, and Ethiopians and Sudanese from you know very specific areas, not 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 the whole country, but very specific areas. They have very light lower limbs, and that that leads to you know great running efficiency and running economy, basically. Mm -hmm. So I'll be looking at people's lower limbs in, in order to to determine who to bet on, who to wager on. Maybe I can sucker a few people into <laughs> wagering on someone with fat you know fat ankles. Did you have any other sections of this book that you really enjoyed? Because we usually talk about our favorite parts of the book. I, I mentioned the Donald Thomas. Is there any other ones that are worth a revisit here? You, you know what? To to me, my favorite part, because I, I was just most interested in it, was actually the uh, the part about endurance running, which it sounds like it was your least favorite part. But I like <laughs> I I just find it so fascinating that like virtually all of the dominant long distance runners in the world come from such a very small sliver or their origins are from such a very small sliver of the world mm. like you know we we say kenyans but it's really 
from a very specific part of the country, right? It's not the whole country. It's a very specific, you know, tribe or, or ethnic origin within Kenya that's mm-hmm. responsible for these. I, I just find that so fascinating. Like, I, I feel like we've grown up in a world where you sort of see things in, in averages where, like, you, you think, oh, anyone anywhere can do anything, basically, potentially, right? But this suggests otherwise like so i'm very fascinated by what you know what leads to these kind of this kind of success like it's such an Mm. anomaly to to have so much success for one thing come from a very such a small part of the world so that that's why i find it so interesting that specific section had a really good part to it where it talked about how the kenyan runners like because we know that Kenyans are so good at running, basically the Americans send scouts into Kenya to look for runners, right? So what they'll do is they'll just take a whole pile of high school students. And many of these people are not even runners. They're just regular students and make them run a race, right? And these guys never run. They, they, a lot of them don't even have shoes. And some of them can do these like crazy, you know, competitive national you know, they'd be the equivalent of nationally ranked runners in the U.S., right, with no training, and then they immediately get scholarship offers. And then they're finding people. They're finding people and offering them scholarships, and they come to the United States and become champion runners, right? Not all of them, but enough of them that this process seems to work. It's crazy. Yeah, it, it, it's incredible. And, um, you know, p- part of it has to do with the, the altitude that they run at. Apparently, it's the sort of sweet spot in terms of, altitude that that you know allows you to have better lung capacity uh, it's sort of the ideal training conditions for for fostering that part of it is that the majority of these these runners they ran like apparently more than six miles to school every day you know during their mm-hmm. their infancy right i mean do we know anybody who had to run to school i know of none <laughs> right so okay that makes sense that makes sense uh, then you got the, you know, the, the genetic component where, you know, they're talking about their built, how they're built, the, the long legs, the thin lower legs, which is good for like running efficiency. Um, the, the history of cattle raiding, which is where you, you have to very quickly move cattle from, you know, I guess one field to another. And this requires like extreme speed to, to, to do it efficiently. Um, there's all these sort of factors that they, they, they put together. So some of these are cultural, some of these are genetic. So I don't like, I, I, I know what you mean. Like it does seem very genes, like genetically focused, but there are a lot of examples of where the, the author deviates from that and, and shows sort of like sociocultural components to, you know, True. why, True. To, to explaining why this, this person has success in this field. Now, We've talked about our favorite parts. Let's talk about parts we did not like. Were there any parts of this book that really, you know, rubbed you the wrong way or you just didn't appreciate? You, know, you mentioned the dogs. I guess that was one chapter. For me, not, not, not really. Nothing really. Nothing else really stands out. Um, what about you? I know you're dying to say something, so let's hear it. Let's <laughs> I, hear it. Yes, yes. So there is a section that we're going to go back to the section in the, about the NBA, right? So the book basically says. There's this whole business about how like how long your wingspan is is important in basketball, right? So not only is height important, but generally there's this whole idea like if you look at the classic Leonardo da Vinci 
you know, sketch of a human body. Like if you spread your arms out wide, that distance from fingertip to fingertip is basically your height, right? And so a well-proportioned man has a wingspan equivalent to his height. Lo and behold, in basketball, you want people who their wingspan is even taller even longer than their height is even better, right? And most basketball players are like that, right? They're at least equivalent or they have longer wingspan than their height, right? I mean, the most famous example of that, like, was Elton Brand when we were, like, kids growing up and they drafted him, the Chicago Bulls. They made a big deal about how short his neck was, right? So, therefore, his arms must be longer, making his wingspan enormous, right? So, you're getting value, right? He's not actually seven foot, but he plays like a seven footer. So, this book then goes through this whole section talking about this phenomenon that most basketball players' arms are super long, which, great, love it. I mean, I was born with short arms, you know, on top of every other disadvantage for my NBA career. This book has to explain every one of them. It then goes into this little bit as it keeps talking about this, and I'm going to quote the book. You know, it's, this is on page 135. It says, Only two players from a 2010-2011 NBA roster with available official measurements have arms shorter than their height. One is J.J. Redick the Milwaukee Bucks guard who is 6'4 with a 6'3 and a quarter arm span, downright Tyrannosaurus Rexian in the NBA. The other is now retired rocket center Yao Ming, but at, but at a height just over 7'5, Yao, whose gargantuan parents were brought together for breeding purposes by the Chinese Basketball Federation, fit into his niche just fine. Like, hang on a minute here. <laughs> like, I don't... I mean, sure, Yao has short arms. That is not the thing that I'm complaining about here. But this whole section, this whole pa- this sentence actually was the biggest turnoff of a sentence I have ever read in a sports book, okay? It was downright disgusting, right? It was racist, stereotypical drivel, right? That made me appalled about this book. I actually, I, I, like, it just, this colored my whole take on the book. And I'm not a person who's necessarily like, super pro-China, or whatever, but this is unacceptable, right? And David Epstein is a graduate of Columbia University, an Ivy League school, right? Tell me where he found the source to say that Yao Ming's parents were brought together for breeding purposes as, as if he was the product of some eugenics experiment, right? I thought I've heard that somewhere before, but, but yes. I don't- There is a source, there is a source. What's the source? It's this crappy book called, the book is called, it's mentioned here. It's mentioned here in the end. It's called Operation Yao Ming, mm. right? By Brooke Larmer, right? This was, the, this was a sports book published a few years back that made this allegation that Yao Ming's parents bre- were bred by the Chinese government. I mean, first of all... You shouldn't use the word breeding. I, could ex- I, I feel like breeding, yeah, that I sounds could, like for dogs. That's what you use that, or horses. <laughs> well, it's, it, it's how you... It's, it's, for, it's for red commies or something, right? Like, this is completely unacceptable. Like... If Yao Ming himself had said that his parents did that, I could accept it, right? Find me a quote where Yao Ming or his parents came out and admitted that they only hooked up to produce him as a, as a, because they were, they were tall, right? If not, where is he getting this information from? Sure, his parents are tall. They're both basketball players. Well, you know what? There are a lot of basketball players that date other basketball players. That, that, you know, you date who you meet, right? You date who you're around. If you're, if you're on a national team, maybe one of the few people you meet that is roughly your height, you know, is on the women's national team. Like, that's not breeding. That's called dating who you meet, right? We're not breeding when we meet other people in medical school and dental school. That's not breeding, right? That's, that's socialization. That's normal human behavior. This, this is ridiculous. 
right? And if if you're gonna use a quote like that, right? I'm I'm talking about serious as a writer. Yeah. If you're gonna use a quote like that from Operation Yao Ming in a book that's supposedly talking about the reality of scientific understanding of stuff, this calls into question all your other research. Like, how can I believe all the other stuff you're saying when you so so casually toss out a thing like this, right? It's just like, oh yeah, yeah, because they're Chinese, I can make fun of them, right? Like, give me a break already. <laughs> um, and you know, you know what else? Um, one thing he did mention in the book is that if you, if you, um, if two sort of anomalous, uh, you know, athleticism parents hook up, like, or, or let's say two very tall people. Uh, have a child that child is very unlikely to have the same anomalous features that their parents have you you like so mm-hmm. Yao Ming in essence is beating the odds right he's saying you can't mm-hmm. necessarily breed quote unquote for that. Uh, it, that that's what he said in another part of the book so uh, I, I don't know I mean I haven't thought about it too much that is a story that does get floated around because I don't know where I heard it but it's in my head for some well, reason. It, I know where you've heard it. You've heard it in the American Probably, press, right? Yeah. American Western media yeah, yeah. likes to float this kind of stuff around. Yeah. <laughs> so you're saying it's not I true. Mean, Wait, there's, no conf- there's, there's no proof of it or anything like that. In a book that's supposed to be about science, right, and improving our scientific understanding of that it is too lazy to have this particular passage. If he had just removed this sentence, you know, I would be okay with the book a lot more. It definitely colors your perception or your your consumption of this book. It sounds like absolutely, absolutely. There there, there are a few sort of throwaway like anecdotes like that, like very short anecdotes that that are sprinkled throughout the book that don't to me don't add a lot and don't make much sense, and they're just thrown in there to sort of appeal to American people. I feel like. Do you know any off the top of your head? Because I'm I'm like overwhelmed. There was a Flo- there was a Floyd there was a Floyd Mayweather example, oh, which I'm yes, like, what was. is that in there? That that's just thrown in there, like where, where he wakes up in the middle of the night to work to yeah. to, to work on his training, like so what? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. There's there's a few yeah. examples like that. I'm like, okay, so what? I think it's just meant to appeal to uh to talk to an American audience. It, so- the Mayweather example, he was saying that because Floyd is known for training in the middle of the night, that that proves that he's much harder working than other athletes. I mean, like, really? Like, some of these dudes are pretty hard working. Like, I, I, I didn't get that. Yeah, one. it just seemed like a throwaway, throwaway, like, kind of kind of like the Yao Ming line. It's a bit of a throwaway line that doesn't add much. The Yao Ming line comes up twice in the book. It comes up again. Like, I won't quote it the second. Near the end, he mentions this again, the breeding thing, right? <laughs> Yeah, it, it definitely sounds like it triggered you. <laughs> definitely sounds like that. <laughs> um, any other uh, any other takeaways from this book for you? Any other beefs? Do you have any other beefs with David Epstein? That's my main thing, man. That's my main. My main thing is I I, I don't find science about of sports that interesting of a thing. You know, that's a personal thing of mine. You know, when I read sports books, I'm not really looking for a scientific explanation for why things happen. So, any uh, any parting shots? I mean, I feel like you've had several parting shots, but I think this is probably a good place to sort of wind things down. I have listened to David Epstein on various podcasts. I was very excited to read this book. I had heard him talk about range. I was very excited to read that book, which I haven't read yet. 
but at the end of this book i was just really disappointed in this thing i i the yao ming thing it was a little bit upsetting you know as an asian chinese canadian i did not enjoy that part clearly but even this the whole thing like it's a little too sciencey i don't think it's a fun book to read for people I think you and I basically explained most of the key scientific principles at play. If people really are really interested in nuts and bolts of the science, you can read this. There are many books that I would put ahead of this on my sports book list. Let's just put it that way. And the sad thing is, a year or two ago, and, and I don't like giving books to people. Like, even though I love reading, I hate gifting books because it's such a personal thing. Like, I might like a book and, you know, you might hate it, right? Or or I don't really like the sports gene. You kind of like it. I mean, that's cool. We all have different tastes. But I find when I have to gift a book to somebody, there's this pressure, right? It's like, well, I love this thing. Now, are you going to love it? If you don't love it, we can't talk anymore or something. Or, you know, I just gave you a bad gift that you're going to spend eight hours trying to deal with. I, I thought the sports gene, you know, I read a little bit at the beginning about, so there's this section at the beginning about, about how I think an underhand pitcher is making major league pitchers uh, whiff. An uh, underhand so- female softball pitcher. Yeah, a female softball pitcher. I think Jenny Finch, possibly. Yes, yeah. She's, she, she's striking out Barry Bonds and Alex Rodriguez and all this stuff. And I read that. I was like, this is awesome. This book is, sounds really entertaining. And, and there are you've, you and I have seen this. Many books put their best scene right at the beginning to get you to buy the thing. So I bought it. I gave it to my brother-in-law for Christmas because I know he's a baseball nut. And he's never read the book. So I, and I know he doesn't read that much. So it's like, it's no big deal. But after I actually then, for this podcast, dug through the book, read the whole thing. A, I got to say, you know, if he's listening, I'm glad you didn't read the book. And B, I'm sorry, man. I should not have given you <laughs> this gift. This is the wrong gift. I mean, isn't it the same thing as, rec- <clears throat> as recommending a movie? But let's say it you is. watch... The a, books are so much... There's so much, what, more effort? This so much higher stakes for me man as a as a sports lit guy as a guy doing a podcast on sports lit i cannot give the wrong sports books to people all right fair enough i I don't think this is something that uh siskel and ebert ever worried about giving the wrong movie recommendations to people it's it's clear that this is just their opinion Mm -hmm. so i think i think i learned i think at the end of the day it's pretty clear what your opinion is (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, my, I'm not going to give away books to people that I have not read yet, <laughs> period. I think I think that's a, a good call because I wouldn't recommend a movie or a TV show that I haven't watched yet. So probably <laughs> probably a good call. Fair enough, fair enough. So what, what are we going to do with this book? Are, like, we're not putting in the Pantheon. I was thinking about should we have an opposite of the Pantheon, well, but that seems... What would you call that? Cellar? Basement? Oh, I I was thinking the dog pound. I had a whole Cleveland Browns thing. The relegation put bracket. The dog, <laughs> the dog. Let's just leave it be. Let's, Let's leave just it be. Leave we don't. It have, be. We, I don't think we need. No, to no, we don't have to put anything in there right now. Like I, to me, I I found a lot of the anecdotes enjoyable. I, I can't recommend the book overall, but uh, there's certain parts that I enjoyed. So, let's leave it at that. Um, so. <laughs> I'll take us away on a on a quote here. How about that? And we'll end the Sounds we'll end the good. pod like we normally do. No, no, we're gonna end with me giving a teaser about our next episode. Ooh. Next episode, we're gonna be reading a book about the greatest sports team ever assembled. That's it. 
That is intriguing. I'm on the edge of my seat. Uh, but allow me to take us away on a quote and just sort of put a bow on, on the sports gene because I think we need that. Here we yes. go. The fastest runner he ever tested was a natural, a 16-year-old boy who came from a rural area and never had a day of professional training in his life, Durant says. The boy ran 4.68 seconds for 40 meters, which would be in the 4.2 second range in the NFL-style 40-yard dash, on par with the fastest NFL players ever. It's what Durant hasn't seen, though, that is telling. We've tested over 10,000 boys, he says, and I've never seen a boy who was slow become fast. I have one more question to ask you. Based on this whole talk about genetics and whatever, do you think Usain Bolt was doping or not? Because to me, you know, you talk about these Jamaican sprinters, Usain Bolt, you know, is unbelievable. I love watching his races. Sometimes when I have nothing to do, you know, kill time at work, I'll load up a couple of his 100, 200 meter races. They're just amazing. You know, and I, I actually love sprinting and track and stuff. And it kills me to think that, you know, maybe he's not clean, but he's never been caught. But his times are phenomenal. They're like beyond phenomenal. This book doesn't really talk about this, but it's talking about the, you know, it's talking about the genetics of Jamaican sprinters. But as a fan, as a sports fan, what do you think? Is he clean or not? I think there's a good argument to be made that there are no clean high-level athletes, especially for something as singular as sprinting, right? Where you need every single advantage possible. I mean, technique will only take you so far. Your, your I don't know, muscle definition will only take you so far. So you need like that sort of extra advantage. And it's been shown that it's very easy to pass these tests right if mm. you if you get on the right regiment it's fairly straightforward to pass these tests maybe it's getting tougher now I, I i don't know but i don't know i just go back to if you remember the the 1988 olympics where ben johnson <laughs> got caught right and since that event every i think i believe every single guy in that race has either gotten caught or 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 had some something very suspicious happen. Except for Calvin Smith. Except for Calvin Smith. Is that true? Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> fair enough. Um, but I, th- I think there's a f- fair argument to be made that most, if not all, of these guys are on something. And that there's, I'm not just talking about sprinting. I'm talking about any of these events, any of these high-level events uh, where there's a lot at stake. How about, um, how about Rafa Nadal? I think it's highly possible. At oh. his advanced age... I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Uh, Roger Federer. I can't rule it out. Let's just put it this way. I can't rule it out. Roger Federer. You These can't guys rule are it out. Ano- the anomalies of anomalies for like tennis players, right? How are they Steph continuing Curry. to play at such a high level? Steph Curry. Steph Curry. Hmm. The reason I pause is because what he's known for, which is his outside shooting, doesn't seem to have much relevance in terms of like steroid usage you know what i mean but he he's has pretty muscular gone, he has gotten a lot more muscular recently and he's at an <laughs> older age he's like into his 30s now these guys tend to want to hold on longer than they ever did before so i can't rule it out okay kobe Bryant. i i would say he's so competitive that this is the type of guy who would <laughs> Oh man! This but I'm not saying brutal. yes. I'm not saying a yes. I'm not saying a yes for any of them. But I'm saying <laughs> very possible. What do you think? I don't want to think. Let's, about let's it, talk man. about Usain Bolt. Go back to the original one. What do you What do you think? 
I don't want to think about it, man. I, I'd like to think that he's clean. He's the pinnacle of sprinting human advancement. You know, we've evolved to that stage. I, I'd like to think that he's clean. I, I know it as a, as a realist, most of these guys are dirty, like you're saying, but I can't accept it as a fan. If I have to think that they're all dirty, I can't watch this thing anymore. He does have such a unique uh, sprinter's body type mm-hmm. that maybe it confers some uh, advantage that was sort of previously unknown before. I, I don't really know. Maybe, maybe the length of his limbs confer a, a big advantage, whereas someone his height would be in uh, like other sports typically. Uh, I don't know. He might be such an anomaly in sprinting that it okay. confers an advantage. The, the last one I'm going to ask you, Wayne Gretzky. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I can't rule it out. I can't rule <laughs> oh. it out. Oh, I'm not going to be able to sleep tonight I, thinking I, about this. I don't know. Like, does it matter though? Does it really matter at the end of the day? Like, let's say all the, let's say, like, let's think about cycling. You know, majority of the guys at the Tour de France are doing some, f- uh, you know, form of doping. Does it really matter in terms of how you perceive it or enjoy it? It does. It does matter. It does. But <laughs> I, I don't know. Is it, it? It's not illegal per se. Like, it's not against the law. It's against <laughs> the law of the sport, but it's not illegal per se. Why is it against the law of the sport? This it's goes an into like an advantage. ethical. It's an unfair advantage. The only advantage you're allowed is genetic and hard work. That's what the sports gene teaches us. <laughs> um. What about the person who's willing to go that far and put himself <laughs> at that kind of risk? Th- isn't that sort of... Uh, well, that's only assuming that the doping is in detrimental to your health, which in some cases it may not be, right? Like, we, in some cases it is, but maybe it's not. You know, it's still cheating. If you're the only guy doing it and no one else is doing it, is that okay? I mean, they're just making use of these drugs that are legal, <laughs> that are not illegal should we like not allow people to have surgery if they have like a broken leg all right should I, they I, not be allowed any sort of medicine i said that wayne gretzky would no be the last killers. one i said wayne gretzky would be the last one but i feel like you cannot tear down all my idols so i'm going to give you one more gordy howe was he clean or not <laughs> <laughs> did this kind of doping even exist back then <laughs> i don't even know i don't even know i feel like the stakes were so much lower back then that and there's so like, like much fewer people playing the sport that I, I don't think it was. There's not the same pull to, to do something like that. At the very least, according to Ball Four by Jim Booten, amphetamines were rampant in Major League Baseball in the '60s and '70s. Gordy mm-hmm. Howe was playing into his late '40s, early '50s during the '70s <laughs> in the World Hockey Association. Food for mm-hmm. thought. No, I'm kidding. Gordy Howe is clean. We're not going to air this part about... We're not going to take <laughs> Gordy Howe's name in vain here. You, you, I, I could also make the argument that why not just have them... Why, why, why not just have them be legal in sports? You know? Yeah, I could So they that. can be taken more safely. Take it out of the shadows and bring it into the light and put, <laughs> put these athletes under the supervision of actual, you know, inter, international real experts, doctors, all right, right? All right? Rather than doing it rather than doing it in the shadowy dark locker room, you know, where a teammate jabs you with a needle. Like why, why would you want to do it that way? 
All right. I don't know. I'm just I'm just playing the devil's advocate here. I, I mean, something about taking it makes me a bit uncomfortable, but it's rampant through many sports. Like for example, like uh, bodybuilding, weightlifting. It's just it's just known that whoever wins it is doing it right, and you can pretty much probably extrapolate to other sports. All right, Bunny Colvin over there. <laughs> <laughs> Give me my hamster dam. Damn it. Let's make it Amsterdam. Bring it out into the open. Bring it out of the shadows. Absolutely. There we go. That's a wire that's a, a wire reference for, for everybody out there. <laughs> if you've seen it. Great show. Possibly the best show of all time. Check it out. HBO. <laughs>